Acts chapter 2, verse 3, but um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 through 14. That's right, 14 chapters. Not chapter 1, verse 14. No, chapter 1 through chapter 14. And you're like going, oh my goodness. Are they providing lunch today? <clears throat> no, I'm just going to talk really, really fast. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, um, spend a week backpacking in Yosemite, and it was awesome. Um, but one of the things, one of the, the people in our group would often tell us, he said, you know, what we need to do is we need to stop periodically and turn and look behind us and look at the views behind us. Because so oftentimes we get really concentrated on the view in front of us and around us. And we're looking at, the, oh, look at that trail that goes up that hill. Oh, my goodness. You know, we're looking at ahead and we're, we're engaged in the beauty. But sometimes we miss a lot of the view, a lot of the beauty and a lot of the scenery when we fail to stop for a moment and look behind us. And oftentimes those are um, scenic views that are easily missed. And sometimes it's very encouraging. You're looking, look how far we've come. It's amazing. Really, we, we were in that deep canyon just a little while ago, and now, look, we're out of it. It's, uh, it's awesome. So um, uh, at the beginning of, of December, we stopped for a while, and, and we did an Advent series, and, and we talked about uh, the, the songs, the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and we stopped our, our teaching in the book of Acts. And uh, we stopped at the end of chapter 14. So what I'd like to do today, since we're stopped, let's go ahead and look back at the view behind us and not only see the beauty of where we've been, but also um, see exactly how far we've come. This, does, this accomplishes a couple of purposes. Number one, I hope that we see the beauty of where we've been. But also, number two, as we start back in the book of Acts, and we're going to start back with chapter 15 next week. Um, it's good that we're all kind of caught back up with what we've been talking about, where we've been going. So today is really a summary of what, I'd like to say what I think is important, but it's all important. So I'm going to do my best to kind of uh, um, give us some of those turning points, those highlights in Acts chapter 1 uh, uh, through the 14th chapter, because when we get to chapter 15, I feel like a, a bit of a broken record here because Acts chapter 15 is such an important chapter. It, it, it really changes church history. Acts chapter 15 is one of those course-changing, history-defining moments. And there have been a few of those in the book of Acts. And um, so today what I want to do is I kind of want to just... Um, reorient ourselves as to where we are, look back, see where we've come, so that as we start moving forward next week, um, we're all moving together. And so our journey so far in the book of Acts has, um, we've been observing the early progress of the church. Um, we've seen the birth of the church. We've seen the growth of the church. We've seen how the church began in Jerusalem, and then it broke out of Jerusalem and went into Judea and Samaria, and even into uh, um, Ethiopia, um, and even into modern-day Turkey. So today we're going to reorient ourselves. We're going to do a bit of a review. But I want us to see, we're going to see how God has been faithful to his promises. Um, really what we're seeing in the book of Acts is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. So we see 
all of God's promises being fulfilled, especially those promises of Abraham uh, being fulfilled, and God is bringing to fruition His promises in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, um, so today, 14 chapters in the book of Acts, um, and I'll—I don't know—we'll just go to where we're done, or until everybody falls over from fatigue. Or till I fall over from fatigue. One, it could be whichever comes first. One of the things that I think we need to uh, to understand in the Book of Acts is, and and it really is foundational, is that Christ is the reigning King, and it's easy to miss that point because we're talking about missionaries, we're talking about sermons, we're seeing miracles, we're seeing a lot of things, but to recognize and to recount and to remember that in the book of Acts, Christ is the reigning king. And the book of Acts opens with um, one of the first things that happens in the book of Acts is the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the ascension of Christ is really one of those over, I think sometimes overlooked event of the life of Christ, especially when we, when we think about uh, the death of Christ. We spend a lot of time talking about crucifixion and Calvary, rightly so. We spend a lot of time dealing with resurrection three days later, rightly so. But really, we don't have a whole lot of sermons on the ascension. That is, Christ ascending to his throne in heaven. Really, what the ascension, how we, how we represented the ascension, I think accurately, was that the ascension was his coronation as king. That Jesus is now taking his throne as king of kings and lord of lords. He ascends to his heavenly throne. This was foreseen by Daniel. It was spoken of by Paul that he is seated above all rule and authority. So he isn't He is not just simply the servant king who came and washed the feet of his disciples. He is that, but he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruling over all of his creation. The ascension, I think, is a really important event. So he is the, that all things are subject to him. He is the living, reigning King of Kings. This is an important foundation to the book of Acts. I think if we miss this, we lose... um, much of what's going on in the book of Acts. In fact, um, we might think that the apostles are doing all the work. Well, they are doing a lot of the work, but make no mistake, it is because Christ reigns and rules from his lofty throne. So, Christ is Lord. He's the king of the kingdom. At one time, Christ carried out his kingly rule in the region of Palestine, um, in Um, Galilee and in uh, Judea, but now Christ is carrying out his kingly rule um, seated in heavenly places and he has commissioned his elect ambassadors to continue the work that he began. In fact, we see this in the book of Acts. This is the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Jesus' work is continuing. It did not stop at the resurrection. It did not stop 40 days after his resurrection when he was teaching his disciples. Jesus' work began. He is continuing that work, only he is now seated um, enthroned in heaven and he is carrying out his purpose 
through his elect ambassadors. Um, and that's what we begin to see. He's working out his purposes and his plans through his church. And so the book of Acts portrays Jesus as reigning on high, overseeing his subjects as they take the good news of salvation and pick up the work that he began. And they began to do and teach. And we're going to see that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They just didn't go in their own abilities and their own strengths and their own giftings, but rather they were empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus, who reigns on high, actually comes and dwells by means of the Holy Spirit in his people to carry out his purposes. And we see that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and really a, a significant, significant event that uh, the day of Pentecost, um, prior to um, the one uh, uh, recounted to us in, in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost was the gathering of first fruits. So the farmers would go out and they would gather the first fruits of their harvest and they would bring it in and present it to to the Lord, and it was a celebration. It was a celebration, and it was an anticipation that further crops would be would be provided. It was not the entire crop. It wasn't the entire harvest. It was the first part of the harvest, but it was an anticipation or a guarantee that the, the rest of the harvest would follow. And so we see on the day of Pentecost, um, Christ sends forth his Holy Spirit as he promised, and there is this great ingathering of new believers. They are the first fruits. They are not the entire harvest, but they assure us that there is going to be a great harvest, that God is doing great things in bringing about salvation to his people. His work has begun. Um, we see this, uh, these first converts, and they're brought into, um, under, uh, into the church of God. And they, uh, but they're not the only converts. They are just the promise of uh, first fruits, that a great harvest will follow. We see on the day of Pentecost, one of the things that marks the day is the, uh, uh, the enabling of great miracles and especially the ability to speak in various um, uh, languages for the glory of God. And so people began to proclaim the glories of God and um, people were, had traveled long distances to be in Jerusalem during the celebration and they hear the glories of God being proclaimed in their own language and they're going, what is this? These people, are, these are uneducated fishermen. How is it that they are multilingual? Which then is the catalyst for Peter to step up and say, let me explain to you what's going on. This, I love this phrase, this is that. Peter says, this is that. This is what Joel talked about. In other words, God has been promising this, this global outreach this is, that God is going to be doing things throughout the, the earth. It's been his promise all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. But, but Peter brings up Joel and he says, this is what Joel talked about. The promises of God are being fulfilled and, the, and that, that salvation is not going to... Um, and we're going to see this is a big deal for Luke. That salvation is not restricted um, or even preferred to one particular um, group, whether it be a racial group or a political group or a social group or even a, a stage of life. Uh, he says old men will dream dreams and young men will prophesy. Young women will, will, will operate in, 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 uh, in this ministry. And so the, the gospel and the ministry of Christ is going to um, 
be very eclectic and it's going to involve all of God's people. And so Peter points to that. Um, it's his first sermon. And um, one of the things that 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 that, that Peter then does is in that sermon, it's very interesting, Peter's sermon and Paul's sermons and Stephen's sermon and Philip's sermons and uh, do we have any other? There's a lot of sermons in Acts. But they would use these, these, these events to proclaim the gospel. But Peter was very specific that he used this miraculous event in order to proclaim the gospel. One of the things that Peter doesn't do, nor does Paul, nor does Philip or Stephen, they don't use these miraculous events, and, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but since I'm there, here we go. Um, like like w- w- with the healing of the, the lame man and, and with this, they didn't then come around and Peter didn't say, well, now that you've seen this guy healed, let's have a healing ceremony. He, had a, he proclaimed the gospel. He didn't then turn around and say, here, I'm going to teach you how to speak in tongues. He said, no, here's the gospel. And so the gospel was the essence of everything that's going on in their sermons. And, and God was doing great and miraculous things as the catalyst for which the gospel which saves was proclaimed. And so now we see that the church has been birthed, it is commissioned, it is empowered, it is indwelt, and it is gifted to carry on and continue the work that Jesus had begun. Who He is now reigning in heaven. He is now overseeing his, his ambassadors, his people, to carry out the work that he began. But he does not um, leave them to their own devices, but rather he has commissioned them, um, he has empowered them, he's filled them with his himself and he has gifted them so that they will be effective in carrying out the work that he began. So that's where we get in um, Acts, the first couple of chapters. Where we go now is we want to focus on the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, which is uh, really all maybe Acts chapter 2, 42 through 6, verse 7. Um, and, I, and I want to spend a little time just dealing with what I'm going to call the hallmarks of the church. And we see two um, very specific um, texts that deal with what we'll call the hallmarks of the church. And, and Acts 2.42 would certainly be one of the, the main ones. Um, we also see in chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. Um, but let me read 2.42 and maybe following we'll see. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all thing in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of the things that really stood out as we, we, at least to me, as we were studying this was the emphasis on being together. Do you notice all the times things like together are in there and also just third person plural. I mean, I know most, 
you know, if you go to this church, you're going to get a grammar lesson from time to time. So notice all the third person, um, especially the third person plural, they all were together. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. Day to day, they gathered together. Um, they, re- they received food with the gladness and generous of heart. They praised God together. And so we see this, uh, this centrality of this small little infant church together. One of the very important elements in the book of Acts when we talk about the church is that you see no Lone Ranger Christians. You don't see people who say, well, I can go worship on the lake in my boat. Yes, you can. And I hope you do. But there is a togetherness and there is a unity that cannot be done fishing on your boat in the lake. So we see this togetherness and it's central to to Acts and to the church in the book of Acts. And there's this emphasis on being together. And they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to um, fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And you'll note, and I'll just highlight this, that the teaching of the apostles is first because doctrine is important to the early church. Doctrine is central to the early church. That's what their preaching was. Their preaching was the gospel. And it was, it was doctrinal. It, it, um, and I, Probably, if you're part of this church, that's, that's a great statement. If you're not, if maybe, I don't know if you're visiting or you're kind of new here, we emphasize that because we think the teaching is, is essential. In fact, all the other things, like fellowship and the breaking of the bread, which was probably communion and the prayers, what were they praying? They had to be praying what they knew was truth. And they broke bread, that is, they celebrated um, the ordinances or the sacraments because it flowed out of the apostles' teaching, and their apostles' teaching flowed out of what Christ taught them. And so doctrine is foundational. We're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. So a quick summary of this early church in the book of Acts is that it was a learning church. It was a loving church. It was a worshiping church. It was a witnessing church. And then here's the thing. It was all done with joy. We see joy throughout the text, and we're going to see joy all over the book of Acts. So joy is also one of those big themes that Luke wants to bring in, that people hear the gospel and they respond with joy. That they suffer for the cause of Christ and they respond with joy. Joy transcends circumstances for for this early church, and I pray that it would transcend our circumstances as well because they're focused upon the risen Christ. So, So this is kind of the hallmarks of the infant church this early church, but I don't want to um, give the wrong impression that everything was perfect and sweet and wonderful and smooth sailing and there were no problems. Because Luke is also very clear to uh, inform us that there were many threats coming at this church, this church that uh, many great things, miracles are happening. The gospel is proclaiming. People are being saved. All of these great things are happening. But Luke wants us to make certain that we understand that it's not all, you know, roses and sweetness. There are challenges. There are very, very serious threats 
coming against the church. And I think the way Luke categorizes them is that they are, there are external threats and that there are internal threats. The external threats are very simple. And one of the things we note is that they increase in intensity. So um, probably the first external threat we see is on the day of Pentecost when the people are speaking in, in different languages. And people, well, well, one of the responses was, these guys are drunk. So the first one is kind of a mocking, uh, just a, you know, a ridiculing, uh, a false testimony. But then we begin to see that those, those mockings get um, more severe and it turns into threats and even the idea of being, becoming socially outcast. You won't be part of our group anymore. You won't be accepted here. We're going to kick you out of our of of, of this group. So it mockings and threats. And then we see physical abuse that the, the, that the disciples are actually physically beaten for their testimony of, Je- of the risen Christ. And then we even see death. And so, so, so we see this increasing nature of the threats against the church. It starts pretty simple and it gets more and more severe. And we're going to, and so Luke makes sure that he understood that, that we understand that, um, that there is this threat. One of the, the great things also, though, and this is why we had to establish the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning because none of these threats are seen as um, setbacks for the church, but rather Christ through them brings about his glories and his purpose. And we'll see that. But we also see in- internal threats and, and two jump out at us. And the first internal threat that we see um, that is evident for us is the issue with Ananias and Sapphira, and you, and you can go back and read read that um, read that account. But Ananias and Sapphira were basically hypocrites, and they lied. Um, and they lied to God, um, and God exacted discipline quickly. They immediately died. That was quick. Probably a lot we can would take from that, and uh, I, Charlie preached that sermon that day, so you can ask him. He's a he's an expert on Ananias and Sapphira and what was going on there. Um, but a couple of things that, that that we see is number one, God purifies His church. God purifies His church. Um, God disciplines His people. And and so perhaps the precedent is set that for that the church is to discipline itself. It is to be a self cleansing. Um, entity, organism, that when people are casting God in an inaccurate way, portraying God inaccurately, so that the world sees him not in his beauty and glory, but in, in some perversity or in some a way that uh, betrays his who he truly is it needs to be dealt with. So that's the first thing we see. But the second threat that we see is is much much more subtle. And what happens is you have um, this you have widows in in the church, and um, and so the church was um, is taking care of the widows. But what you have is you have Jewish widows that is they were. Um, I'll just say traditional. Let me just use that. We're very traditional Jewish um, widows. But you also had some Hellenists. And these would be more Greek-speaking, influenced by Greek culture. 
They were also Jews and they believed in Messiah and all of these things. But you had these two groups of widows and one group, the Hellenists, that would be the Greek influenced um, widows, were, were complaining, saying, wait a second, we're getting an unfair distribution of resources and we think that this is not good. So, here are a couple of the threats. The first one is, is fairly obvious. Um, the first one was, was that you can all, already see now a division in the church, can't you? Or a potential for division. Here's the easy answer. The easy answer for the apostles would be to say, well, here's what we're going to do. You Hellenist widows, we're going to serve you over here and we're going to start the first Hellenist widow um, outreach and all you Hellenist people can, can minister over there and all the Jewish folks, um, the more traditional Hebrew Jews, can, can serve over here. Do you see there's the potential for a split in the church along um, cultural lines? That culture is going to split the church. The apostles were wise, saying we're all under the resurrected Christ. We are all one under the resurrected Christ. They're, they may be Hellenist widows, and these may be Hebraic widows, but we are all followers of Jesus Christ, and we do not separate. We do not worship separately. So the first thing they did was they said, well, here's what we're going to do. Let's get, let's get some some really good individuals and select some, some godly men and they'll serve the needs of the widows. This will divert the more serious but the more and the more insidious threat because the apostles said we need to give ourselves to the word and to, and to prayer. Do you see the more insidious threat? The more insidious threat was to take the apostles away from teaching God's word and from praying to serve the needs of the poor. Now, don't get me wrong. Do not think for a moment that I'm saying the church is not to care for societal needs. It absolutely is as evidenced by our text. Our text declares that the church made certain that societal social needs were dealt with. However, it also understood the priority and the necessity of certain individuals to proclaim God's word. And they were not to be, um, that was not to be diluted. There was a great threat, I believe, here from taking the called men away from the proclamation of the word and prayer in order to meet societal needs. See, here's the thing. The church can do both. The church can be very, very strong in its teaching, as well as reaching out to the needs in its community. In fact, I'm not sure why we have this dichotomy. I think it's a false dichotomy that we either are strong in teaching or we're strong in meeting the needs of the community. I think it's a false dichotomy. I don't know where, well, I know where we got it, but you don't want me to hear that lecture. That doesn't happen until the 19th or 20th century. But anyways, the early church saw that we can be strong doctrinally, strong in our teaching, strong with godly men praying, as well as reaching the needs of our community, feeding the poor. But that was under threat. And so uh, we see both external and internal threats. 
And then we come to this guy by the name of Stephen. Actually, Stephen was one of those guys who was um, called and commissioned to take care of the poor widows. Go back and look at the list of the, the people who were called to take care of the widows. And Stephen was one of them. All right. Stephen also becomes a great preacher. So it just shows that they saw proclamation of the word and taking care of, of social needs uh, as not being, you know, people can do both. The church can chew gum and walk at the same time. And Stephen does. He serves the needs of the poor. And then Stephen, he's such a pivotal figure in the book of Acts. Maybe probably one of the things that stood out at has most stood out in my study of the book of Acts is the person of Stephen. Um, He's so pivotal. It is through the ministry and death of Stephen that the church explodes beyond Jerusalem. Stephen is the catalyst for explosive church growth. He's brought to trial based on false accusations. We see um, his defense, which is probably the longest, I think it's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, is uh, given to us by Stephen, and we see his death. So we see this very, very truncated, short life of Stephen, and yet, I think without Stephen, he was the catalyst for for church growth. You see, they killed him for his testimony of Christ. And he really only got, to our knowledge, one sermon. And you're going, well, how does a guy with one sermon, even though a long one, um, impact the church so much? Because I think what, what we see Luke informing us is that the death of Stephen is not viewed as a setback for the early church, but rather it becomes the catalyst for worldwide missions. Really, here's what it is. Stephen's, both Stephen's life and death were gospel proclamations. His life and his death were gospel proclamations. His life, he displayed Christ. In fact, people saw him, as the, they saw him as the face of an angel. They couldn't refute his words. They brought false accusations. He looks just like Christ. In fact, what was his dying words? Lord, do not hold this charge against him. He emulates Christ exactly. He's not Christ. But he is so related to Christ and so intertwined and so joined to Christ that when you look at Stephen, he's doing the exact same things as Jesus. And even in his death was a gospel proclamation. I believe personally, this is just my own thought, you can take it and throw it away, but I believe that Stephen's death had a huge impact on Paul. In fact, I would say that it was a major influence on the Apostle Paul. Because remember, Paul was there. Paul was at the death of Stephen. He saw him die. He saw his face like an angel. He saw him plead for God's forgiveness for these people. He probably heard the sermon. And so, his life and his death were a gospel proclamation. This is why I've entitled this sermon The Triumph of the Gospel. Because no matter what, when Stephen dies when they're persecuted, when there's internal threats or external threats, one thing that is not hindered is the advancement of the gospel. Jesus is never hindered, which is why we began with Jesus reigning on his throne. Because no matter what happens, the failures and the foibles of the apostles, the the threats of others, nothing hinders the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts. In fact, 
Some things that look like a negative and a hindrance and a setback actually are the catalyst by which the gospel goes forth. And so now we come to the church and we've looked at the church in Jerusalem. Now let's look at the church in Judea and in Samaria. And so the fires of persecution, Stephen's death emboldened the leaders, so they began persecuting the church. And instead of the church um, shrinking or dissolving, rather, the the fires of persecution scattered the seeds of the gospel. And so the refugees, people are fleeing Jerusalem, and the refugees don't go out silent. They go out, and we, we made a verb out of this term, this noun, they went about gospeling. They went about sharing the gospel. So they fled Jerusalem and they go across the borders and they begin to share the gospel wherever they, wherever they went. So they had absorbed the apostles' teaching and now they go about sharing the gospel with others. And one of the pla- things we see, we see Philip preaching in Samaria. Remember what Jesus said? You will be my witnesses. Where in Jerusalem? Where else? Judea and Samaria. And we're seeing Philip going into Samaria. In a moment, we'll talk about Peter going into Judea. This is exactly what Jesus said was, you're going to do it. And if, I, if I've got to use Stephen's death to get you out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, that's what's going to happen. And so that is what happens. And so Philip now goes, he begins preaching in Samaria. And one of the great things we hear um, from Philip preaching in Samaria is that there is great joy. Great joy in the city. In other words, the Samaritans rejoice because they are concluded in the saving plans of God. They've been told all their life, you have no place in the plans of God. You are half-breeds. You have no place. You worship falsely. You worship the wrong book and you worship in the wrong place. And now Philip comes in and says, in Christ you can have forgiveness of sins as well. And there is great joy that God will receive you by the merits of His Son, Jesus Christ. Really? Yes. And there's great joy. The Samaritans are included in the plans of God. And just to put a stamp on the fact that God has received the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans in the same way that it fell on the people, the Jews, in Jerusalem. I don't want you to miss this point. I think it's a major point of Luke. First of all, Samaritans are not second-class believers. They get the same Holy Spirit that the Jews got. They get the same God. But what we see is God is gathering His people. And He's bringing them all under one tent. We're going to see this as we go through the, the book of, I think... Some people refer to this as the Samaritan Pentecost and then you'll get the Gentile Pentecost and then you get kind of a a weird kind of isolated group in, in Acts chapter 19. These are not just random events. Luke has selected them specifically to show that God is gathering Jews and Gentiles and outcasts and Samaritans and those out on the fringes and he's bringing his people together and they all receive the Holy Spirit in the same way, which is Peter's point in Acts chapter 15, but that's next week, probably the next few weeks. So God is gathering his people. And then um, Philip is providentially moved to share the gospel with an Ethiopian who'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And God says, leave your great miracle revival. In Samaria, there's a revival going on. People are getting saved and people are getting healed. And, and God says basically to Philip, now leave that place and I want you to meet one guy on a remote desert road. 
What? Don't you see, God, what's going on? No, go meet this one guy. And so he does. And um, so we see Philip um, providentially. I think there's kind of a hint of foreshadowing of what's going to happen with the Gentiles. And then we come to the conversion of Saul. And I I described this um, in my sermon as perhaps one of the most important events in world history. And, and And I made sure that I clarified that it may be one of the most important events in world history, not just church history, but world history. The world is a different place because of the conversion of Saul. The entire world is a different place because Saul went to to Damascus to kill Christians. And God intervened and saved this, this individual. And he encounters the... He goes, he seeks to silence the gospel. He's willing to to use whatever means necessary to silence the gospel. I believe he actually thinks he's doing God a favor. God steps in and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which is interesting because he was persecuting the church, which shows us the union of Christ and his church. But he encounters the risen Lord and it's amazing because he goes from breathing threats, is what Luke tells us, to writing 1 Corinthians 13. What change from a guy who breathes threats to the church to saying, if I do not have love, I am nothing. This is a new man. This is a totally recreated individual. And he begins immediately to proclaim the gospel that he had previously sought. To silence. So we now have seen the church in Jerusalem. We're seeing the church expand into Judea and into Samaria. But wait, God, Jesus said, but he will also go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And while we're not quite going to get all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth, in chapter 14, we will begin to see it begin to expand. And so one of the hints we see is we see Peter meeting with a Gentile named Cornelius. And there's a lot of providential um, miracles and dreams and, and all sorts of interesting uh, God things uh, putting Peter and Cornelius together. And so Peter shows up at Cornelius's house and he's got an audience there and basically they said, okay, so tell us whichever you came here to tell us, tell us. And so he begins to proclaim the gospel and he does. And once again, to the Gentiles, remember the Gentiles, all right, um, outcasts, outside of the covenant promises of God and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the same way as it did to the Samaritans, in the same way that he did to um, the Jews in Jerusalem. The same sovereign work and the same miraculous signs and now what we see is Gentiles are accepted by God in the same way that God accepted Jews. And uh, this is such an important part. Because we talked about this, the Jews had always, or Gentiles had always been accepted into the Jewish community, right? We have Ruth, and we have Rahab, and we have other people who were, who were proselytes and God-fearers who, who converted to Judaism. But you'll remember that they cannot worship in the same way as the Jews. In the temple, there was a court of the Gentiles. They were outside. They were never allowed to come near to God. Oh yeah, you follow God, but you're still second, third, fourth class citizens and you're out there somewhere. We who have God and have had his covenants and have been 
inheritors of, of all of his promises. We're near to God. But here, what's happening is the Gentiles are now brought near to God in the same way that the Jews were. And here's the thing. They didn't have to become Jews first. They became believers, followers of Christ by grace through faith. They didn't have to go and undergo circumcision. They didn't have to adhere to the dietary laws. They didn't have to uh, adhere to the, the holy days. They became full members of Christ's church by grace through faith, the same way everybody did. And so this again is pointing forward. They're saved by grace. So you see God is gathering his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then we see this con- uh, fulfilled and concluded in the book of Revelation where we see before the throne of God people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people standing before the throne giving praise and glory to God that you people who are seen as second-class citizens in this gospel presentation because of the risen Christ you are now being your heirs of God's promises by grace through faith. And we now begin to see a quick change, a, a move away from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And I don't think I put a map up there, but that's okay. Um, you can look in your Bibles. You have maps in your Bibles or online. That Antioch, and Antioch now becomes the central location. Up till now, Jerusalem's kind of been the, the hub of Christian activity, but it begins to move to, to Antioch, and here's one of the crazy things, not crazy, but one of the cool things about Antioch is they become one of the first churches to evangelize Gentiles. Up till then, they've been, they've been evangelizing um, Jewish people in their communities. But in Antioch, they said, hey, let's share the gospel with Gentiles. And so they do. And the Gentiles begin to receive the gospel. And then they have this, well, I'd say they have this idea, but it's not really their idea because they're worshiping, they're praying and they're fasting and the Holy Spirit intervenes in their worship and says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas and I'm going to send them out to start churches, to be my witnesses in Gentile regions. And so it is out of this local church, this this local church, that they began to reach not only people who were like them, but they began to reach other people like Gentiles who were not like them and bring them into um, the gospel community. And then as they're worshiping, um, uh, the Holy Spirit um, compels them. And I love that word. It compels them to to go forth. And I I don't want you to stay in Antioch. I want you to go out. I want you to, to... minister outside of Antioch. And all of that is the product of worship as the Holy Spirit interrupts their worship and directs them to reach beyond themselves. And so here's the interesting thing about Antioch. They shared the gospel with their neighbors and they shared the gospel with others outside of their community. And once again, the church can chew gum and walk at the same time. And I, again, let me just dispel another false dichotomy. Sometimes when we call people and we say we're, we want to do a mission trip and we want to go to a foreign country, one of the popular responses I get is, well, what about my neighbor? Stop that dichotomy. It shouldn't be there. Minister to your neighbor. We can do both. Likewise, somebody says, well, I was sharing with my neighbor. Well, what about unreached people groups? We can do both. God has given us the ability to share the gospel with our neighbors and the lost in our community as well as go to unreached people groups and foreign countries. Yeah, even this church can do both. So, and, and it's evident in Antioch. Antioch is ministering to its neighbors and then the Holy Spirit compels 
Paul and Barnabas to go and share the gospel with people who've never heard outside of their um, outside of their town, outside of their city, outside of their country, their region. And so they begin sharing the gospel. And once again, what do we see as we see the gospel triumph? The gospel triumphs. Um, Paul and Barnabas and, and initially John Mark, we'll get to that in a little bit, and they go down to Cyprus and they minister in a couple of areas and there's internal and external threats. Imagine that. But the people are still being saved and they go up into what we would call uh, southern Turkey is the kind of, and then kind of the Galatian area and they begin to, um, to share the gospel and they meet heavy resistance. But in spite of all of the resistance, people are being saved and churches are being started. And so they go through some various areas and and they begin to share um, the gospel. Um, They're undeterred by the hostility. They're encouraged by the Holy Spirit and they have a message. And the message is that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And if you will repent and believe in him um, who serves, who, who, who is the substitute, who, who put himself forward as a substitute for your sins, you will be saved. And so they begin to say this, and people are, some people are not very excited, and they beat up Paul and Barnabas, and, um, but then they, they keep going, and um, they're met with both belief and unbelief. So we shouldn't be surprised when we share the gospel and sometimes met with unbelief. Yeah. And sometimes it's met with belief, and then there's great joy. But none of it deters the apost- these, these, these missionaries. They are undeterred. They get beat up. And then they say, hey, let's go back to those towns that we uh, started churches in. You mean the ones that beat you up? No, the ones where there are believers who need to hear and be encouraged by the gospel. Nothing is going to hinder them. Not only from sharing the gospel, but then encouraging brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's go back and encourage them. And then they establish and they strengthen the churches. I love how, how the church is represented in the book of Acts. So the missionaries, what did they do? Um, well, I don't want to get myself in too big a trouble, but that's okay. Uh, they didn't dig wells. They preached the gospel. Uh, I'm not opposed to digging wells. I think clean water is great. Building solar energy farms for people because I think that that helps. But the early church preached the gospel. Shared the gospel, the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they did. They planted churches. And then here's the thing. They organized churches. What? The church is organized? Yes. Absolutely. There is no loose structure of a church that's just kind of willy-nilly. Whoever happens to kind of feel led that day gets to kind of maybe speak. and then whoever. No. The churches are organized. There is a leadership And then Paul and Barnabas, they go back to their sending church and they are accountable to that church. They report all that happened. In other words, we're not just Lone Ranger missionaries out here sharing the gospel. We have been sent by the Holy Spirit through a local church. They have supported us. And now we go back and give account to them of what's been going on. And there was great joy. So, anyway, that's where we are. Are you with me? Are we all caught up? All right, that's the book of Acts up until now. Obviously, there's much, much more. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 15 
we're going to spend a little bit of time, at least two weeks, maybe three weeks, super important chapter because it really affects us today. It affects this local church, the Jerusalem Council, and, and how they uh, began to, to deal with Gentile conversions. Um, so I'll just conclude here then that with this that the book of Acts then provides a history of the origin and the growth of the church. And once again, I want to emphasize that central to the history of the church is the ascension of Christ to his throne as Lord of all. Don't miss that point. Uh, Because it's easy to get get focused on on what the apostles are doing and it's really important And understandably so. But all of this is happening because Christ has ascended to his throne and he is the one who is seated above all things. And everything is subject to him. And he is the one who is directing this whole thing. He is the Lord of all. And he is the one who is directing and empowering his people. We should note that the people are not left to their own ability, but rather they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Another comforter. Jesus said, when I go away, I'm going to give you another comforter just like me. Basically, he says, I'm going to give you another me. That's a very loose translation. He says, I'm going to give you another Jesus, another me who will be with you, uh, who will be with you and in you. And he will be, he, he will go with you. I'm going with you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm coming back in the form. I'm sending forth my holy, my spirit to be in you. And basically, you're going to carry out the work that I began. That's awesome. God dwelling within his people to carry out his work. Folks, this didn't end in Acts chapter 28. God is still operating through his church, through his people, to bring about the salvation of his, of his own. So we're not left to our own abilities. Jesus is dwelling within his people and he is continuing to carry out his work and he will do so until the day that he returns um, and then there will be much rejoicing, at least amongst his people. So I hope you're, you're up to date. Today, if you have any questions about um, your relationship with Christ or where you stand with him or what it means to be a follower of Christ, if there's any confusion there or you're just uncertain, am I a believer? Do I follow Christ? What's going on? Um, We would love to be able to sit down and talk to you about um, living uh, a life committed to the gospel um, and living out the fact that Christ is dwelling in us and, um, and reflecting that reality. So if you will, stand. Let's